Reflections on the Hebrew Prophets by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 2 The prophets had to speak both alarm, condemnation, repentance on one hand and hope on the other. They found through bitter experience that their message of hope was a dangerous message because we human beings would will easily grab onto a message of hope and turn away from the crisis uh, toward a sort of uh, naive optimism. So first Isaiah, who is writing uh, before the fall of Jerusalem, good a while before the fall of Jerusalem, uh, he has to be careful with his hope. So he says in chapter 8, I bind up this testimony, I seal this revelation in the heart of my disciples. So he has to put the hope someplace so that when it's time for it, it'll be there. And he puts it in the heart of his disciples. It's a, the, the, the metaphor you, you see would be like the, uh, the digger pines, and I think it's the bristlecone pines too, whatever those pines are that drop their cones, but the cones don't open until the forest fire comes. Uh, so first Isaiah is doing that. He's taking his message of hope. He's putting into heart into the hearts of his disciples, those who have understood his work most deeply, and into their heart he inscribes his hopeful message so that when their hearts break, it'll be there. Now, of course, their hearts broke when Jerusalem was destroyed and with it the temple. And so second Isaiah is writing from a refugee camp of Jerusalem deportees in Babylon. And he, is in, he has had his heart broken, and his people have had their hearts broken, and they have suffered the catastrophe, and they are now on the bottom of history, and you have an opportunity at the bottom of history to opt out. And Second Isaiah pops out. He's had his heart broken, and he opens his broken heart, and he finds in it a message of hope. So Second Isaiah says, in one of his servant songs. We'll speak of the servant songs in a little bit. He says, The Lord has given me a disciple's tongue. Each morning he wakes me to hear, to listen like a disciple. The Lord Yahweh has opened my ear. So he says, I have a disciple's tongue and a disciple's ear. And it's in the disciple that the word of hope of first Isaiah has been implanted. And so second Isaiah is now prepared to not only express but live that hope. In, a ho in an apparently hopeless situation. There are tremendous paradoxes with regard to 2nd Isaiah. For instance, he most strikingly of the writing prophets is anonymous. And not that there weren't other anonymous contributors, 3rd Isaiah for instance, but his stature and his anonymity together are striking. And also he is the one who says, I am merely a disciple of first Isaiah. He says that in the passage I just quoted. So he is the one who most faithfully tries to receive the tradition, as St. Paul said, receive the tradition and pass it on. That, that is the key movement in the process, to receive it and pass it on, to receive it and pass it on. But notice with second Isaiah, as with Paul and the, and the, great, the greats in, in this transmission process, what they receive and what they pass on are different. Not different because they have altered it in, in an idiosyncratic way, but because they have deepened its implications. 
and, uh, and broadened its application. So second Isaiah is a disciple, that is to say, is the most traditional, and he's the most anonymous, and in spite of those two things, he's the most original. So those who think originality consists in doing something other than what's already been done might be missing the point. It is the passing on the tradition in that creative sense that is the source of originality. And he is original like almost nobody else in the biblical world except for Jesus. And then you get the great line which we now have in, in hymns and, uh, and exclamations of all sorts in various liturgies, sing to the Lord a new song. This is what he is to do, to sing to the Lord a new song. As we begin second Isaiah, Isaiah hears a voice. A voice cries. I'm reading the New Jerusalem translation, which may not be the one that your ears remember. Prepare in the wilderness a way for Yahweh. Make a straight highway for our God across the desert. Let every valley be filled in, every mountain and hill laid low. Every, let every cliff become a plain and the ridges a valley. Then the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed and all humanity shall see it. Now notice the, the scope of this call. First of all, you must prepare a way. It's, it's important, I think, to understand that Second Isaiah himself understands his life as, as a preparation for a new awareness. He does not see it, I think, in the first instance happening in his own life. And then he understands the scope of what's involved in this transformation. And it's nothing short of, the, of turning the world upside down. The valleys are filled and the mountains are laid low. And this is a radical transformation of the mental and spiritual landscape. A few verses later, this voice says, Go up on a high mountain, joyful messenger of Zion. And the Hebrew term joyful messenger, translated in the Septuagint into Greek, is the term gospeler. Go up and be a gospeler, a singer of the good news. Claus uh, Koch, a, a scholar of the prophets, says this, Here a changed understanding of God is heralded. It finds no correspondence among the other literary prophets. Deutero-Isaiah has not unjustly been called the evangelist of the Old Testament. That is to say, there are five evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the second Isaiah. But, Koch goes on, but he was far in advance of his time, and pierced far beyond the knowledge of God shared by his people. And since his prophecies were not granted early fulfillment, his own followers saw themselves forced to make corrections and to return to a more customary understanding of God. So second Isaiah, in his turn, had to plant the mystery of his message someplace so that when it was ready to be dealt with in more detail, it would be there. In a sense, Second Isaiah represents the outcrop, the first major outcropping of the revelation about us human beings. But as Cox says in his commentary, nobody was ready for it. It was too soon and too perplexing to make any sense to anybody. And so, in a sense, Second Isaiah writes his message into the heart, in a sense, of his disciples. His immediate disciples, you see, couldn't grasp it. 
So he writes it in a way on the soul of Israel. And there it stays. Second Isaiah, the writings of Second Isaiah stay there as this strange, troubling, perplexing conundrum, a puzzling text. But I think the important thing is that it's written on the soul of Israel. And if the soul of Israel ever takes on a body, it'll be there. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. The passage that I quoted of Second Isaiah saying, go and prepare a way for the Lord, that passage is quoted in all four of the Gospels at the point where they begin. All four Gospels, if you exclude their, their prologue, begin by quoting that passage. And they refer that passage to John the Baptist. That is to say, they see John the Baptist as performing that part of Second Isaiah's prophetic work. And then they will see Jesus as performing the remaining part. And Jesus, in his turn, at the end of his life, had to understand that he was going to run into the same problem that first Isaiah had, that second Isaiah had, namely, that this message was going to have to be incubated a while longer. And he would incubate it uh, in the hearts of his disciples and in a community of disciples who would have attending them the spirit or in John's Gospel, the paraclete. So in the final discourse of Jesus, in John's Gospel, Jesus says, when the paraclete comes, being the spirit of truth, he will guide you along the way of all truth. So it is a gradual unfolding of a realization which begins, we must take sec second Isaiah's word for it, begins maybe with first Isaiah. Of course, first Isaiah began where? With Moses or whatnot. But for Second Isaiah, it becomes visible in a very striking way. Returns underground, if you will, comes back again in the gospel period, and then surfaces for a, a few decades, goes back under, particularly goes back under about the fourth century, and stays under maybe and coming out occasionally here and there, but by and large, incubating all the while. And to the extent that the incubation progresses, it's because the paraclete has been at work. With the, with the inspiration. Well, an example of that already in, in uh, Acts of the Apostles, the second volume of Luke's work, where uh, we get the community after the death of Jesus. I'll read this in chapter 8. The angel of the Lord. Now, the angel of the Lord is synonymous with spirit and paraclete. So, when, when Jesus in John's Gospel says, I'll send you the paraclete to help you figure this out. You, in other words, the paraclete is the hermeneut, you see. Paraclete is the one who comes and says, well, you're gonna, it'll take you a while. It'll take you a while to figure this out. Uh, Owen Barfield says, uh, 2,000 years is not a very long time. So the gospel says, it will take you a while, and, and uh, the paraclete will be there with you to work it out in the meanwhile. So this is, Paraclete here is the same as the angel of the Lord or the Spirit, Holy Spirit. The angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Be ready to set out at noon along the road that comes from Jerusalem down to Gaza, the desert road. There's even an echo there, you see, because a second Isaiah had said, Make a road in the desert. Make a way in the wilderness. Reclaim the wilderness in that sense. So Philip set off on his journey. Now it happened that an Ethiopian had been on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Now, the Ethiopian would have been sympathetic with the Jerusalem, the Jewish cult in Jerusalem, 
but would have been a Gentile. He was a, a eunuch and an officer at the court of the queen of Ethiopia and was in fact her chief treasurer. He was now on his way home and as he sat in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. The spirit said to Philip, now already you know that uh, everything is in place. Uh, the right combination is Isaiah and the spirit. The Ethiopian is reading Isaiah and the spirit is talking to Philip. Now all we have to do is get these two characters together. That's what's required. Isaiah and the spirit. The Ethiopian and Philip are, are simply attending the process. You see. The spirit said to Philip, go up and meet that chariot. When Philip ran up, he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? How can I? He replied, unless I have someone to guide me. So he invited Philip to get in and sit by his side. Now the passage of scripture he was reading was this. Like a sheep that is led to the slaughterhouse, like a lamb that is dumb in front of his shears, like these he never opens his mouth. He has been humiliated and, ha and has no one to defend him. Who will ever talk about his descendants since his life on earth has been cut short? And that's from the last of the four servant songs in 2nd Isaiah. So he is reading and pondering 2nd Isaiah as the early Christians did in order to understand the Jesus event. If they had not had 2nd Isaiah as a scriptural resource, how could they have possibly made sense of the Jesus event? The eunuch turned to Philip and said, tell me, is the prophet referring to himself or someone else? By the way, he, he anticipates the biblical scholars by 2,000 years because that's, that's been the hot topic for the last 150 years in 2nd Isaiah. Uh, is he referring to himself uh, or is he referring to Jeremiah because he, uh, because he would, have understood, would have known of Jeremiah's word or is he referring to Israel as a whole, personifying Israel as the servant? The latter is not likely given the textual anomalies, but... In any case, the, the, the uh, eunuch asked the right question. Starting, therefore, with this text, Philip proceeded to explain the good news of Jesus to him. So starting, therefore, with this text, 2nd Isaiah, Philip explained the gospel. And that's how the gospel came into being. So, 2nd Isaiah plus the Spirit equals the gospel. Or if you happen to be the Messiah, 2nd Isaiah plus the Spirit equals the Messianic mission. Now, 2nd Isaiah himself understood, I think, the gradual unfolding nature of the reality that he was uh, beginning to discover. Yahweh says to 2nd Isaiah, See, I am doing a new thing. There's a, there's a wonderful passage here where Yahweh says, uh, uh, you will remember, won't you, about being in Egypt and uh, we brought you, uh, brought you out of Egypt and led you across the desert and led you across the Jordan and into the promised land and stood by you and protected you and da-da-da-da-da. And then Yahweh says, now, forget it. Hearken not back to the old things. And Yahweh says, I am going to do a new thing. It's almost as though you get Yahweh 
exasperated because of this constant repetition of the last time he did something like this. So he recites it and then says, now, fine, forget that. I'm going to do something new. It's got to happen now in your life, in your time. You're back at the bottom of history. See? Now we're going to do it. Now we're going to, it's going to be an exodus again, but it's a different one, a deeper one, a more important one, more lasting one. So he says, see, I am doing a new thing. Even now it comes to light. Can you not see it? Yes, I am making a road in the wilderness. Can you not see it? There's a little hint here, you see. Of, it's just coming into view. We're just beginning to be able to see it. And Second Isaiah seems keenly aware of that. And Yahweh speaks to him and says, It is not enough for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back the survivors of Israel. That's the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. It's not enough for you to simply do that. Yahweh says, I will make you the light of all the nations so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Now, this is, this is again, something startlingly new in 2nd Isaiah. There are hints of it beforehand, but 2nd Isaiah, as I said earlier, had, takes, suddenly has this absolutely universal mission. I'd like to, to quote from a, um, a column that was in the Press Democrat early in the week, a column by Thomas... Bosensteel, a media reporter for the L.A. Times, he wrote a column entitled A Cry in the Dark, which is a movie. This is a kind of a quick little re review of one aspect of the movie. A Cry in the Dark, Blaming the Messenger Again. I haven't seen Cry in the Dark, so all I have to go on is this column, but it doesn't matter in terms of what I'd like to bring out with it. Anyway, let me read portions of his column. In large part, A Cry in the Dark is a finely controlled study about Australia's terrifying and true Chamberlain case in which a mother who claimed a wild dog carried off her baby in the Australian countryside was eventually tried for murder. The Chamberlain case became one of the most publicized in recent Australian history, a national circus that turned the Seventh-day Adventist Chamberlain family into a national freak show. But from the first time that someone tells Michael Chamberlain in the movie, the first time someone tells Michael Chamberlain that reporters are calling about his daughter's disappearance to the last frightening freeze frame of the press honing in on the family, A Cry in the Dark is marred by a tediously familiar plot. The media did it. The problem with Cry is that the press, contrary to common mythology, is rarely, if ever, the lone gunman. What would be more interesting, and what Cry in the Dark hints at, but ultimately backs away from are the deeper forces that the media reflects. The media are, are disturbing not because reporters are slobs, but because of what their stories and their excesses imply about us as societies and cultures. Now, what he is suggesting with that little innuendo at the end is that uh, somehow we as societies and cultures feed on this kind of lurid publicity, having to do with finding a murderer, say, who has somehow eluded our grasp as righteous citizens. Somehow our righteousness needs to find the culprit. And somehow he says, now we're all criticizing the media for doing all these things, but in fact the media is simply doing our work for us. 
they're going out and getting the lurid stories and presenting them to a public which is increasingly ravenous for them. I also saw a cartoon. This was just yesterday. We try to keep current here at Timo. In this cartoon, a man and his wife, I take it, are sitting in their little living room watching the TV. And the man says, has Geraldo no shame? This is disgusting. There's six little frames in this thing. Can you believe people really watch this stuff? And this wife says, no. And then she says, I thought it was bad yesterday. And he said, the last frame was, he says, you should have seen it last week. And of course, this is blamed on the media. Somehow the media is doing this terrible thing. And meanwhile, we're all ravenous for it for some reason. Well, let me read to you from Carl Jung. Volume 10 of the Collected Works. Since no man lives within his own psychic sphere like a snail in its shell, separated from everybody else, but is connected with his fellow men by his unconscious humanity, no crime can ever be what it appears to our consciousness to be, an isolated psychic happening. In reality, it always happens over a wide radius. The sensation aroused by a crime, the passionate interest in tracking down the criminal, the eagerness with which the court proceedings are followed and so on, all go to prove the exciting effect which the crime has on everybody who is not abnormally dull or apathetic. Everybody joins in, feels the crime in his own being, tries to understand and explain it. Something is set aflame by the great fire of evil that, is, that has flared up in the crime. Indignation leaps up. Angry cries of justice pursue the murderer. And they are louder, more impassioned, and more charged with hate, the more fiercely burns the fire of evil that has been lit in our souls. It is a fact that cannot be denied. The wickedness of others becomes our own wickedness because it kindles something evil in our hearts. Now, this is, this is a psychologist speaking of something which, from a psychologist's point of view, looking at a phenomenon which in the last number of weeks we have been looking at from the point of view of anthropology. Strikingly, the anthropological approach and the psychological approach have a lot in common. It is very clear they're both looking at the same phenomenon. Now, Jung says, indignation leaps up, angry cries of justice pursue the murderer. But Jung has just said, you have to understand that the criminal is not the sole source of this contagion. It has a much wider radius, he says. So this cry of justice that comes from the mob must be called into question in one of the servant songs of Second, of second Isaiah. It says this, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have endowed him with my spirit that he may bring true justice to the nations. He does not cry out or shout aloud or make his voice heard in the streets. He does not break the crushed reed or quench the, qua the wavering flame. In other words, no shouting out justice for him because that is not true justice. And he is coming to bring true justice. It goes on faithfully. 
He brings true justice. He will never waver nor be crushed until true justice is established on earth. For the islands are awaiting his law. The islands are awaiting his law is the, is the, spe- is the way of speaking about all of those nations beyond the seas, you know, that's like you know, out in the outer solar system. Every, the cosmos is waiting for true justice because the cosmos, the human cultural cosmos, has been operating on this other kind up until now. And the other kind is the justice that comes from the mob with its fists in the air saying, justice! So second Isaiah is on, the, the word, by the way, the, the Hebrew word, mispot, is, is used by earlier prophets with something other than this profound implication. The scholars, the insightful scholars have have translated it here as true justice because of the way a second Isaiah inflects it. It's not your standard justice. It's another thing. It's an, in other words, it's a critique of standard justice in favor of some other kind that we're not even aware of yet. True justice. Let me return where I left off to Carl Jung's observations. And now he brings it into history. Long before 1933, there was the smell of burning in the air. And people were passionately interested in discovering the locus of the fire and in tracking down the incendiary. And when denser clouds of smoke were seen to gather over Germany and the burning of the Reichstag gave the signal, then at last there was no mistake where the incendiary dwelt. Terrifying as this discovery was, in time it brought a sense of relief. Now we knew for certain where all unrighteousness was to be found whereas we ourselves were securely entrenched in the opposite camp among respectable people whose moral indignation could be trusted to rise higher and higher with every fresh sign of guilt on the other side. Even the call for mass executions no longer offended the ears of the righteous, and the saturation bombing of German cities was looked upon as the judgment of God. Hate found respectable motives and had ceased to be a personal idiosyncrasy indulged in secret. And all the time, the esteemed public had not the faintest idea how closely they themselves were living to evil. Something of the abysmal darkness of the world has broken in on us, poisoning the very air we breathe and befouling the pure water with the stale, nauseating taste of blood. True, we are innocent. Jung's going on. True, we are innocent. We are victims, robbed, betrayed, outraged, and yet, for all of that, or precisely because of it, the flame of evil glowers in our moral indignation. Something of the abysmal darkness of the world has broken in on us, is breaking in on us in our time. At first, it's people of significant consciousness, like Jung, Girard, I'm working with Girard, he's one of these. But then it began, it's, it, Become, it's so become so obvious that it's available for us, you know, mere earthlings. And people begin to notice it, like this chap who's writing, a media guy writing for the L.A. Times. He begins to intuit that there is an appetite for this ritual out there, and people are disgusted with the appetite, so they blame the problem on the media, but still in all they're ravenous for. He said, so he's beginning... I mean, he certainly doesn't see it the way Jung or Girard would see it, you see. But he, he begins to see this process. It's be, in other words, it's becoming visible. In some ways, uh, we in our time are like 
are like the Ethiopian in the chariot. And we need Philip and the Spirit to uh, come in and, and break the news to us. He's reading a very troubling, the, the Ethiopian's reading a very troubling passage in which there's obvious suffering. And he needed the Philip and the Spirit to come in and say, hey, this is good news. And uh, he must have thought in the first instance, well, how in the hell could this be good news? So what appears to be happening is that the, the mythological construct is crumbling that has prevented us from becoming aware of it. The delusional system is letting a few people escape its power, its seduction. And we would ask ourselves, well, where was the wall of that containment first breached and how? And strangely enough, I think we could go back to 2nd Isaiah and, it, and say it was breached when 2nd Isaiah did what was the most astounding thing practically that had ever happened. He says this, For my part, I made no resistance, neither did I turn away. I offered my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who tore at my beard. I did not cover my face against insult and spittle. Now this is taking the prophetic development to its culmination. The prophets had tried to save the world, and they could only save it by seeing it for what it was. That is to say, they could only save it by having the kind of God-centeredness that allowed them to be, to some extent, immune to that mimetic vortex that caught everybody else up into the myth. So that somebody was standing outside of it and looking in and saying, you know what, folks, that is a delusion. And so could stand outside. And then what happened, Jeremiah was the one who demonstrated that, is the one who stands outside of it becomes the, the victim of, of its violence. And then in Second Isaiah, you have someone that's astounding enough to be able to resist the, a, a mimetic vortex that's developing in a community, which is really the proto-violence. It's the preliminary to what will become unanimous violence. As it, as it builds. It's one thing to be able to withstand that, but it is quite another to be able to withstand the mimeticism of violence itself, to be hit and not to hit back. Nothing is more mimetic, imitative, more compelling in that sense than violence itself. And to be able to receive that violence and avoid the impulse to mimic it back is beyond the capacity of most of us. I worked for, for a while with one of, the, one of the deep Quakers, I'm telling you, and he said, I want to tell you something. If you want to avoid violence, don't go near it. Don't delude yourself into thinking that all those principles you have rolling around your head will stand you in good stead if you're in the presence of it, because it won't. The, my, violence is tremendously mimetic and it catches us up. And here is one who was not only able to avoid the mimetic vortex in the, in the social cohesion, but also able to avoid the violent reaction to violence. You see, the great lie at the heart of history is that you have to kill in order to stop the killing. That is the lie. And it has to be broken somewhere and exposed for what it is. And second Isaiah stands there and does not reciprocate. 
Now, we've admired the Old Testament candor all the way along. But here in 2nd Isaiah, for the first time, is a completely frank description of the sacrificial mechanism from the point of view of its victim. The disguised and emaciated versions of that mechanism still managed to achieve a modicum of cultural consensus at the expense of its victim. But its power is waning, which means we are able more and more in our time to see it as it functions. Now, Second Isaiah does not have the perfect lucidity of the Gospels in terms of this uh, process, but it is astounding. And what I want to read to you is the fourth servant song. Uh, opinions differ among the scholars about this, but my, my own surmise is that this is a passage written by the disciples of Second Isaiah, his closest associates, after he has been murdered, and is their understanding of the of what the death that, that he faced and the way he faced it, what it might mean. And here's what they say. And I want you to pick up on how perfectly this is describing the sacrificial crisis. The cultural unanimity brought into being by the discovery of the guilty one. You see? Just as Jung said, uh, in, when the rest of Europe discovered that Germany was such a culprit, Everybody breathed easier, and we could start saturating. We could start the saturation bombing of Dresden. You see, on a cultural, so on a on a smaller microcosmic scale, that's what's happening here. And this is the first full-blown description of it, and it comes from the point of view of its victim. As the crowds were appalled on seeing him so disfigured, did he look that he seemed no longer human? So will the crowds be astonished at him, and kings stand speechless before him. That is to say, his disciples are saying, someday we will retry this case, and he will not be the one found guilty. Like a sapling, he grew up in front of us, like a root in, an arid, like a root in arid ground, without beauty, without majesty, no looks to attract the eyes, a thing despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and, and familiar with suffering a man to make people scream their faces. He was despised, and we took no account of him. And yet ours were the sufferings he bore, ours the sorrows he carried. But we, we thought of him as someone punished, struck down by God, brought low. Yet he was pierced through for our faults, crushed for our sins. On him lies a punishment that brings us peace, and through his wounds we are healed. Now this, by gospel standards, is, a, is somewhat of a clouded recognition of what has happened. But however less than the gospel understanding it is, it is vastly superior to the kind of stuff coming out of the think tanks and the social and political commentators of our time and all the other heavy breathers who are trying to figure out what's going on. We had all gone astray like sheep, each taking his own way, and Yahweh burdened him with the sins of all of us. You have in that the reference to that, the, the disintegration of the social order and the reconvening around the victim. Harshly dealt with, he bore it humbly. He never opened his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughterhouse, like a sheep that is dumb before its shearers never opening its mouth. 
by force and by law, he was taken. What, that is to say, the mob rule plus the judicial system. Would anyone plead his cause? No. Just like the gospel. Yes, he was torn away from the land of the living, for our faults struck down in death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now, those are the two ingredients of the myth. Violence and deceit, or violence and the mythological alibi that makes it seem to have been okay. And here's one who, had, who sponsored neither the violence nor the deceit, and who exposed both of them for what they are. After this, the violence and the deceit are become somewhat visible. It's the anticipation of the passion story. One of the books that Girard has published, there's a colloquy between himself and some other scholars on these matters. There's a little passage that I want to quote to you before we go on to Second Isaiah, just to... Uh, in this colloquy, Girard says, People do not wish to know that the whole of human culture is based on the mythic process of conjuring away man's violence by endlessly projecting it upon new victims. All cultures and all religions are built on this foundation, which they then conceal just as the tomb is built around the dead body that it conceals. Murder calls for the tomb, and the tomb is built around the dead body that it conceals. Murder calls for the tomb, and the tomb is but the prolongation and perpetuation of murder. The tomb religion amounts to nothing more or less than the becoming invisible of the foundations of religion and culture. And then Gerard quotes from Luke. Woe to you who build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and you build their tombs. He doesn't say so here, uh, but that, well, let me go on. Then Gerard says, For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Jesus at once reveals and unambiguously compromises the history of all human culture. That is to say, they're sacrificed, and then the myth is applied, which is in the metaphor of the tomb, which somehow makes the death understandable. They're sealed up in the mythological alibis that, that explain why they had to die. And then one of the interlocutors, Jean-Michel Orgulian, says this, and this I think is very important for modern society. This murder tends to efface itself behind directly sacrificial rituals. That is to say, the sacrifice of sheep and goats and stuff. But even these rituals risk being too revealing. And so tend to be effaced behind post-ritual institutions such as judicial and political systems or the forms of culture. These derived forms give away nothing of the fact that they are rooted in the original murder. Second Isaiah says, Let us go to court together. Who finds a case against me? The Lord Yahweh is coming to my help. Who dare condemn me? So he understands that he asserts his innocence and says it will someday, he says at one place, second Isaiah, my vindicator is on his way. And of course, the Christians understood that as being Jesus. When Jung says something of the abysmal darkness has broken in on us, I think it means that we have begun to recognize the victimization rituals as exactly that. 
because he's, that statement comes from a passage in which Jung has described them perfectly, the victimization ritual. So the victims, and second Isaiah prominent among them, must now be faced again. And when they're faced, it will be we and the sponsors of culture and history who will have to admit our complicity. In chapter 11 of Luke, Jesus says, The wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some they will slaughter and persecute, so that this generation will have to answer for every prophet's blood that has been shed since the foundation of the world. Yes, I tell you, this generation will have to answer for it all. Now, what I think he means here by prophet's blood is not necessarily one who, had the profession, who, who was a professional prophet, but one whose life was prophetic in the sense of revealing the truth uh, because in being outside of the myth, they became its victim. Now, the prophets who are killed, and according to the other passage in Luke, tidally buried in the tomb, and then the Pharisees decorate the tombs from generation to generation. That's, that's, a, that's really a metaphor for, how, for the process. Everything's fine as long as people stay in those tombs. As long as the dead will just stay dead and accept the mythological excuse that we have provided for their deaths. They died so that, so to make the world safe for democracy. Or they died because uh, God was angry with them. Or they died because they were heathen. Or they died because a court convicted them of uh, manslaughter or first-degree murder and we, and, and we don't allow that. Or they died because da-da-da-da-da-da-da, whatever it is. To the extent that we used their death to reconstitute a cultural consensus, they need to be retried. We need to reopen the case. To the extent, regardless of, of their moral, of any, say, a criminal's moral culpability, doesn't have anything to do with that. To the extent that we leveraged that death into more cultural consensus, then they died for our sins. And we have to reopen the trial. And second Isaiah says, someday you'll reopen this trial and you'll find out I'm innocent and you're guilty. Even though nobody in the, within earshot of me at this moment believes that to be true. Because everybody but me is caught up in it. The crucifixion scene in Matthew. Jesus, crying out in a loud voice, yielded up his spirit or breathed his last. And the Gospel of John is he breathed out his spirit in the sense of, of, of the penuma, the spirit onto the world. That in dying, he released the spirit into the world. And then the spirit would begin to do the work. So, crying in a loud voice, he yielded his spirit. At that, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple is the, is the place of the sacrificial cult. And the veil of the temple was torn in two. And the earthquake and the rock split and the tombs opened. And the tombs opened. This is a description of the collapse of the myth. The myth, the, the myth is we kill them and the next generation tells the myth to justify the killing. And all of that works as long as they stay in the tomb and we continue to decorate. And at the crucifixion, the tombs open. 
And the bodies of many holy men rose from the dead. And these, after his resurrection, came out of the tombs, entered the holy city, and appeared to a number of people. I take this as a I, I take this as passage as an opportunity to reflect. I'm not. I don't know what uh, Matthew had in mind, but I, th I take it as an opportunity to reflect on what happened at the crucifixion. And what happened is that the nice, tidy relationship between the murder and the myth, the killing and the tomb, and the decorating of the tomb from generation to generation broke down. And the tomb opened up just a second Isaiah said it would someday. And there stood the victim demanding, in a sense, that we face them and recognize that they died because of our delusions. Luke says, this generation will have to answer for every prophet's blood that has been shed since the foundation of the world. Yes, I tell you, Jesus says, yes, I tell you, this generation will have to answer for it all. Meaning that the generation that comes to grips with the Jesus event or to comes, comes to grips with the gospel has to accept responsibility for all that is exposed by the gospel, by the Jesus event. Namely, that whole way of, that whole delusion which we call history, which is we only know how to make history by making victims. We have always tried to stop the killing by killing. And Jesus said, you cannot do it. Jesus said, the kingdom means to simply love and to open oneself to the demand for a nonviolent love and that means that when, it, when killing starts or persecution starts, you cannot try to overcome it by achieving a victory over it. What is more powerful, what is more redemptive, victory or suffering? If you say victory, you're in history. If you say suffering, you're in the gospel. History is the myth that says, that allows me to look on those killings as somehow necessary. And what happens, I think, in the 20th century is that it begins to break down. And that is a very exciting thing. And what that means, and what Gerard says, this is, Gerard has even these biblical guys going, oh my God, I can't believe it. What Gerard says is the reason that's breaking down is because, is because the Gospels have been, have been corroding it from the inside for 2,000 years. And finally, the people who have been exposed to the Gospels, even though they have totally ignored their deeper implications, finally those people cannot convince themselves that their victims were justifiably excluded or murdered. We cannot, simply by calling them gooks, bomb the Vietnamese into oblivion. It doesn't work anymore. And what Jung said, we're beginning to recognize how our sense of self-righteousness is really a cover-up for a very bloody operation. And so I guess what I'm saying is that it's it, not history in any the usual sense we're saying, but just this thing that comes in and says they died. It was that was those were necessary deaths. What I wanted to have us feel. What I wanted is at least get a hint of is the good news. And the good news is that we that we with Jung can begin to utter that sentence. The abysmal darkness of the world has broken in on us. 
What that means, that's what the word apocalypse means. The word apocalypse means the revelation of what is. And that means we have begun in our time to experience the apocalypse. Not the end of the world in some cornball way, see. But the end of history, we're beginning to, the, the historical, the veil of the historical illusion has been breached. And we're beginning to see through the alibis and the excuses and the rationalizations and all of that and recognize what we have done. And it's just what Luke says here, what Jesus and Luke says. This generation, and that means any generation that comes face to face with the implications of the gospel, will have to deal with the death of all the prophets. Whatever the delusion is that allows me to feel horror at the murder of this person and feel justified at the murder of that person is the central delusion. That is to say, that delusion is so powerful that unless we get to the heart of that delusion, we'll never come awake. Because that is the delusion which is everywhere. Now, there are lots of delusions that are all kinds of variations of but that one is everywhere. That is absolutely central. And so, you, it, if we could get to that one and expose it for what it is, we'd be in a new world. And I think it's that one that the Gospels expose, the biblical traditions generally and the Gospels specifically. And that's not to say that there aren't other issues in life, but that that has the most mythological power to sweep us up into delusions and that what's presented in the Jesus event is a choice between that illusion and what Jesus calls the kingdom. There comes this moment in the history of the tremendously significant uh, religious journey that the Bible is documenting. There comes this moment at the bottom of history when someone meets the mob with absolutely no resistance. Now, not because uh, he wants to come out of the, all this uh, morally pure, but because he wants to end it. He wants to take that violence and not reconstitute it in, the, in an act of reciprocity, but to end it and to end it in such a way that those who wake up the next day will not be as likely to believe the persecutor's version of what happened. That is to say, when I say they won't believe the persecutor's version, what I mean is they'll be to that extent outside of the historical myth. Historical myth will say he died because, it says it in the text, they said that uh, he was being punished, rightly punished. He was rightly punished. So the next day everybody wakes up and says, well, he was rightly punished. It's not our fault. And a few people say, you know, that's not true. And that is the beginning of the breakdown of history. 
And when Jung finally gives us that very dramatic picture of it, people yelling justice and ending, in, ending up bombing German cities, he's simply saying, we're now becoming aware of this. And to the extent that this might be happening, to the extent that we might be living in an apocalyptic time, apocalyptic in the deep sense of, of coming to the end of the historical myth, to the extent that we are, we all owe a debt of gratitude to Second Isaiah because somebody had to be the first one to be able to resist the, mim the mimesis of violence and in, and in doing so, demonstrate with his life. It's as though Second Isaiah, particularly Jesus, let's take Jesus, as though Jesus said, you have your weapons and your myths and I have my life and a commitment to love. If it comes to it, we'll have a showdown and we'll see which one gets destroyed. And it's taken us 2,000 years so far, and it will undoubtedly, if we live long enough, take us a lot longer. But what happened is that the myth and the weapons became much more compromised than the life, even though the life was physically ended. And that is a tremendously dramatic moment in the, in the history of life on this planet. And I don't know of any place to look for its earliest glimmering better than the, than the writing to Second Isaiah. Where we're, where we're going with this thing eventually is to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be part of the eschatological community? Which is to say, a community that, that consciously refuses to convene itself on those premises. And not only that, but takes onto itself the task of living in such a way as to destroy the myth. Now that's what the eschatological community is, and that's what the world is, is aching for. And so it's not as though there's no alternative. There is, in fact, an alternative, and that is to, to bring a community together based on, based on some other process, a community which will dedicate itself to living in such a way as to expose the myth. And, to, and, and that's not because we're, you know, we're out to expose myth, but that's because the kingdom is this other experience of life, and it's on the other side of history.